Christ is risen. It's good to be with you this morning. I want to say something. Um, you know, sanctuary is a really special place. Uh, and I don't just say that because I get paid to you. But my wife and I, we were married in 2012. Sanctuary was our home church. You were our people. And we were here for several years, and then we left. We moved away, and we were out of state. We were not going to sanctuary anymore. And I can't tell you in that time that we were away how much I missed sanctuary, that there's something about the spirit that this place carries that if we're not careful... I think we'll take it for granted that you can get too close to a thing or be around a thing for so long that you just kind of accept it as normal. You know what I'm talking about? And sanctuary is not normal. There's, again, there's something about the spirit that this, this place carries. Uh, there's something about the voice that it carries, especially in a place like Tulsa, that is so special and so unique. So I just want us to be aware of that today, that uh, maybe we need to see our community with some fresh eyes, and boy, if this isn't going to be annoying, i tell you what. The Britney Spears microphone is betraying me. Uh, oh, wow. Well done. Well done. Is it toxic? Yeah, this side of the room didn't hear that at first. <laughs> oh, man, let's pray. God, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks for the gift of this day, the gift of this space, and God, especially the gifts of one another. God, give us new eyes to see new ears to hear what it is that the Spirit might be saying to us today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Augustine once said that if you can prove it, it's not God. Such an ambitious statement, right? In our day, I think there's a lot of emphasis on proving. But interestingly enough, the early church was not moved or drawn in by Christian thought. It wasn't ideas, Christian ideas, that was animating their lives. It was Christian life and community, the way in which they lived with one another. To them, the truth of community was far more important than the truth of dogma, the truth of doctrine. But... Joining our lives in community is much more challenging than joining our lives to propositions and ideas. It's far easier to manage a sort of system of ethics than it is to manage a relationship, particularly with the infinite, invisible God of the universe, a relationship with a God that we cannot see. There are times that all we can really do is leap into the mystery of it all. That we jump into this flow and we see just how this tradition 
orients us toward the infinite and toward the holy, toward one another. I think today's lectionary texts, they point us to something of that, that mystery, something of this terribly difficult, infinite, invisible reality that we're called to join into. I want to, um, I want to read to you one of the other lectionary texts for today. This comes from Acts chapter 16. This is Paul and Silas. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Interestingly enough, it was not illegal to be Jewish. Jewish people and the Romans have been living together for a long time at this point. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing, ordered them to be beaten with rods, and after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions... He put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights. Rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. What a bizarre story. What must I do to be saved? This is the question that the jailer asks. What must I do to be saved? We ought to consider for a second both the strangeness of the question, what must I do to be saved, and the strangeness of who's asking it. Here's a man, he's a jailer. He's just received Paul and Silas as prisoners. He takes them into the jail. He locks their legs into the stocks, returns to his post, and 
Maybe he hears them singing. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he dozes off. It starts getting late. And the next thing he knows, there's an earthquake. And the prison is no longer a prison. Really more just a series of walls and rooms with no doors. So the jailer, he's so sure that all of his prisoners have escaped, or at least that they're about to. Or maybe he's afraid that because they've escaped that they're going to rebel and kill him. Whatever the case may be, the situation is so dire that he decides to take his own life. And Paul and Silas apparently have some sort of view of what's happening, and they yell out to him, stop, we're all here. And the only real bit of dialogue that we get from this man, from the jailer, is what must I do to be saved? Now, we can read this story a couple of different ways, infinitely really, but at least, at least a couple of ways that I think are important for us. What must I do to be saved? Is the jailer asking a theological question? Is he concerned about the eternal state of his soul? We can assume so because Paul gives a theological response, but I think it's very possible that this man is asking an existential question. What must I do to be saved? Because here he is in charge of all these prisoners, and they're no longer prisoners. And that means trouble for somebody who makes a living and is called to keep the prisoners prisoners, right? What must I do to be saved? And here he is thinking, I was going to end it all. And now here are these two men who stopped me. He said, don't do it. So looking at these two men, he asks them the question, you tell me what to do. Now what? What must I do to be saved? I think this is a question that we still, we still have a hard time with. At least we ought to, if we're honest. For most of us, this question of salvation it focuses on a single moment of decision. The single moment of do I choose to believe or don't I? For others of us, maybe we've grown up with some suspicion as to whether or not our decision really stuck. You know what I mean? Like, I made that decision once, maybe I was a little kid. Um, did it count? Was I sincere enough? Have I screwed up too much since then? Am I still saved? Should I continue to respond to altar calls just in case? <laughs> and so we spend our lives with this looming fear that we haven't, we haven't done enough or we haven't been good enough or that we've screwed things up too badly for it to count. Regardless, I think that this question, what must I do to be saved, it's a question that we don't fully understand. And maybe we've accepted answers that haven't really been fully realized. And here's what I mean by that. How many of us have been saved from things that we never knew we needed saving from? That when we responded to this call to salvation, understanding that we need a savior in some way, we have this idea of the ways in which Jesus is going to save us but he saves us in a completely different set of ways. I think for, for me personally, 
I was maybe, I was five years old. I'm a third generation pastor's kid. Um, I remember sitting on the bottom bunk of my, I had bunk beds when I was five, sitting on my bottom bunk and my mom in to put me to bed. And she asks me this question, have you ever accepted Jesus into your heart? Um, and I'm five, don't really understand, but I pray a prayer. And the whole context of this moment is my eternal salvation, right? Now, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure that that's true on some level, right? That my eternal salvation is secured. But the ways in which Jesus has saved me is so much bigger than that. As a third-generation pastor's kid, I've experienced a number of church splits, uh, several of those church splits involving my own family, um, dividing my own family through divorce and other sorts of weird separation in my family, and maybe one of the things that Jesus has saved me from is bitterness toward his church. And I think these are the kinds of ways that Jesus wants to be present to us. Yes, he wants to save our souls, but there's so much more that he wants to save us from. I think we experience resurrection in our lives in ways that we weren't expecting. So maybe this question of what must I do to be saved, it's it's a question that we ought to be continually asking ourselves. What am I doing to be saved? Or maybe more accurately, in what ways is Christ saving me today? In the words of our Orthodox brothers and sisters, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. See, we know the answer to the jailer's question, as well as Paul and Silas did. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is it to choose to believe in Jesus? What is this choice? If you're anything like me, you've been told that you need to invite Jesus into your life. You need to invite Jesus into your heart so that Jesus can forgive you of your sins and lead you into a new life. And while there's truth there, I think that this, it's too narrow I think we have to remember that the gospel is not the news that we can receive Jesus into our lives. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has received us, us into his life. The devil didn't want that sentence to come out. Did you see that? (laughs) The gospel is the good news that Jesus has received us into his life. When we imagine ourselves as receiving Christ into our lives, I think it paints too small a picture of the life that Christ imagines for us. That accepting Jesus into my heart can lead to a life that is really all about me. That it's about what Jesus is doing in me and through me and for me, but the gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is the announcement that a new day has dawned on creation that a new kingdom has been established and we are free to be received into this new life so that it's not just in me and through me and for me. It's a life from God, through God, and for God. 
This kind of reality is bigger. It's more inclusive. It's more expansive because it's not just about accepting an invitation. It means getting to be a part of the inviting. Let's look at another one of the texts for today. We find this in Revelation 22. And this text, it's the very end of Revelation. And funny enough, you know, Revelation, a lot of times we see it as this like climactic moment in the scriptures that because it's at the end, this must be the most exciting part. Um, Spoiler, the reason Revelation is at the end is because the assemblers of the canon weren't really sure they wanted it to be in there. So they sneak it into the back to think, well, maybe people won't see it. Um, Nevertheless, it's there. It is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here in Revelation 22, we have seen the new city, and we've been told her gates will never be shut, that the healing of the nations and the kings of the earth takes place. And here's where we find these words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The spirit and the bride say, come, come. In some mysterious turn of events, God has not only received us into God's life, but we join in in inviting others to come and to do the same, to accept the invitation that God is offering you. What's going on here? Why is this kind of partnership so so significant. I think, I think for us it has something to do with what we find in Genesis. So if you're following along today, you've been at the end of the book, go to the beginning of the book here in Genesis 2, starting in verse 19, and we read, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. We know that when God creates, he calls it something. As he speaks creation into existence, he looks at it and he calls it good. But what God calls good Adam gives a name. The way Adam is invited to participate in the work of God is to take what God has called one thing and to call that thing something else. That all of creation is flying under this unified banner of good, but it's Adam's job to parse it out. It's Adam's job to divide it up, to give it a name, to give it a particularity. But in Revelation, we see that the spirit and the bride are working together. But this time, they're saying the same thing. Come. The picture we get in Revelation is that the people of God have so participated in the life of God that their actions and their words and invitations are the exact same thing. That it's indistinguishable where the life of the bride ends and the life of God begins. 
I think this is what it looks like to partner in the work of the kingdom. That if we, sanctuary, are going to be a spirit-filled community, that it doesn't happen by saying, watch this. It happens by joining with the spirit in this invitation. Come. Come. Come in. Come, you who have deemed yourselves unworthy. Come, you who have been told that there is no room for you. You who have been wandering and searching. Come and join the rest of us who have also been wandering and searching and looking. Come in. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That the Lord is full of mercy and grace and compassion. Come in. The invitation to come is not just about unity with the Spirit, but also unity with one another. That we're asking people to come and to join in this experience of God's God's goodness. We heard earlier this prayer from Jesus asking that they may be one. This famous prayer from Jesus. And for us 21st century dwellers, witnesses to the effects of the Reformation, a culture that splits its churches over coffee beans, it feels like this prayer has largely gone unanswered. That Jesus prays a prayer that God does not respond to. What do we do with that? What do we do when Jesus prays a prayer that doesn't get answered? It should stir in us the question, does God get what God wants? And of course he does. Of course he does. So of course Jesus' prayer is answered in some way. In spite of how it seems, we are one even when we don't act like it, even when we don't realize it, Christ makes it so. That he prays for our unity and he fulfills our unity. He is the embodiment of our oneness. This past week, I'm sure you were all aware that we celebrated Ascension Day. Um, No, you weren't. None of you knew. But ascension is celebrating the reality that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there's a way that we can read this as bad news, that like Jesus has left us, but he sends his Holy Spirit. That on some level, it's better for us to let go of Jesus in the ascension because we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father It's about him being universally present to us. I'm kind of frustrated that Richard Rohr has stolen this cosmic Christ idea um, because it's such perfect language for it, right? That Christ is now cosmically present to us. Christ makes it so that we may be one. We hear echoes of this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one body. There is one hope. There is one faith. So why doesn't it feel like it? In Colossians 3, Paul tells us that your life is hidden in Christ, in God. And I think this is part of the reality of where we live all of our days, that our lives as believers, they get hidden in the person of Christ. But Paul goes on to say that when Christ is revealed, then we will also be revealed with him in the end in glory. So Christ makes our unity possible almost in spite of us, it would seem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't actively move toward what God has for us. Just because Jesus has made something so doesn't mean that we don't partner with him in that work. The question for us becomes, how do our lives look once we come to this awareness that we are one, that Jesus' prayer has been answered, that our lives have been joined with Christ and we have been received into the work that God is doing? What do our lives look like? Let's go back for a moment to our friend, the jailer. Here he is. The prison is destroyed. His suicide plot has been thwarted. He's witnessed this miraculous act of God. And he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then what happens next? What happens next? They take him to be baptized. Actually, the text tells us that he and his family were baptized without delay. Immediately, they take him to be baptized. Why baptism? Why is this significant? What's happening in this moment? Remember, in baptism, we join in Christ's death, and his burial, and his resurrection, his newness of life. As we become members of the body of Christ, we become brothers and sisters in this moment of baptism. This matters because God's first move is always identity. God's first move is always identity. God makes the first move. And any voice, any voice that tries to tell you that you are anything other than beloved is temptation and a lie. Maybe this is why the devil asks Jesus in the desert, if you are the son of God, because he knows that Jesus is vulnerable to temptation precisely to the degree that he is insecure about his identity and his mistrust in his relationship with God. This is what Alexander Schmemann is referring to when he says that the first act of the Christian life is a reunification. A reunification. Not a unification, but bringing things back to the way that they were bringing us back together, bringing back the image of God 
the image that God has always imagined for us, who God created us to be. This is why we can say that we've been saved, that we are saved and we are being saved, that we need to keep coming back to this invitation and this identity. And Martin Luther, when he found himself in particularly dark places, as he often did, he would center himself and shout back at the darkness, I am baptized. In his moments of depression, moments of questioning his identity, moments of doubt and whether or not he was doing the right thing, he would stand there and he would shout, I am baptized. Yes. <laughs> Being baptized means carrying an identity that we have a role in participating with the spirit as the bride in this invitation to come and let everyone who is thirsty come and let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. This means that the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is joining in the life of Christ, which of course means joining and extending this divine invitation to others. This is something of what it means to be holy, to lead a holy life. In Hebrew, the word for holy is kadosh, which gets its origins in this ancient word meaning hospitality. Interestingly enough, in some Jewish context, they'll read this word kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And when they're all standing in their services, as they read it, they'll go up on their tiptoes. Kadosh, kadosh. This is something different. This is something other. This isn't like standing on two feet, but I welcome it. Holiness, if we define it as otherness, is really grounded in how we receive and welcome in the other. Holiness is grounded and rooted in hospitality. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us this parable of the sheep and the goats, and he says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. Sick, and you look after me. In prison, and you visited me. And the whole world is judged on our response to these kinds of moments. Have we been people who fed, who gave water to those who were thirsty? Have we seen the stranger and welcomed them in? We see this play out in the life of the jailer, the same man who had led Paul and Silas into a jail, locking their legs in the stocks, He's the same man who leads them into his home, washes their wounds, and prepares them a meal. Something about realizing our identity in Christ, it leads us to a life of radical welcome, of radical hospitality. And this is, I think, who and what the church needs to be. In the words of Rachel Held Evans, the church must be a refuge even to its own refugees. 
we have to be honest about the ways that we have led people to feel unwelcome, made them feel like there isn't space, or made them feel like they don't quite have their life put together enough to be a part of this house. For us, this means that Christ is not only hospitable, but he draws hospitality out of us. That we're not just to admire and worship the hospitality of Jesus as we're welcomed into his life, but that in that welcome, we are called to extend a welcome to others. It seems as though Jesus doesn't just enjoy bringing individuals to himself. But he brings whole swaths of people that do not belong together, and he really enjoys making them sit at the same table. (laughs) If Jesus is in charge of the seating arrangement at this heavenly banquet, none of us are sitting by people we like. (laughs) Hospitality, reunification, partnering with the work of God and the Spirit's invitation. All of this is for the purpose of healing the world. The work of the fall that we see in Genesis, it's the work of separation. It's the work of division. Remember, in the garden, in Adam and Eve, they they see each other in their nakedness. And what do they do? They cover themselves but only the parts that are different. We become scandalized by our differences rather than embracing them as diversity. Our differences, they create separation, which is the work of the devil, separation from God, separation from one another, and separation even from ourselves, not being able to see ourselves rightly. So if Christ is about unity and hospitality. The devil is about division and separation. This is why the work of Christ is destroying the work of the devil, and it's found in unity and hospitality and radical welcome. Salvation and invitation, holiness and hospitality, this is how the work of the fall is undone in the world. The question left for us today is how do we become the kind of people who can see the world this way? Walter Brueggemann said that Christ is the sole mediator of the world. What does that mean? He is the sole mediator of the world. This means that unless unless Christ is between us, I can't see you rightly. That unless Christ is between us, I can't relate to you appropriately. It's like, oh, this is such a terrible reference. It's like in National Treasure. Yes. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage has to put on those little glasses that have all the little colors. And he's standing there in the church trying to read this thing. And he keeps flipping down the colors. And then finally, there it is. All the things that were possible that he couldn't see before. Jesus is the little glasses that we put on. 
He's what makes it possible for us to see one another as brothers and sisters. I can only see my neighbor rightly when Christ is between us. The thing that Christ wants to show us, the thing that we can't always see right away is that his prayer has been answered. That we are one. In doing so, we join our hearts and our lives not only with one another, but with the communion of saints, the faithful believers who have gone before us, as well as those who will come after us, continuing this tradition of faith. In doing so, we throw ourselves into the mystery of it all. This relationship with the divine, infinite, invisible God of the universe. Augustine says, when your spirit is poured out upon us, you do not fall down, but lift up. You are not scattered out, but gather in. The work of the Spirit in the world is about lifting up and gathering in. So sanctuary, may we be a community joining in the Spirit's invitation to come, to lift up, to gather in. Amen.